Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt and today I'm here with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone, as always, it's a pleasure. And Bradley Allsop. Folks, welcome to this episode. And we're here to discuss two of the big issues this week. Um, one of them closer to home, which is uh, the mm, less than uh, brilliant week that the leader of the opposition has had. Um, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, uh, has uh, been uh, accused of plastic patriotism or being fake, inauthentic, however you want to put it, or uh, rather strategizing to be uh, to be as such. Uh, with a leaked report from a PR company that was suggesting that a greater f- that the party should have a greater focus on uh, the union jack on veterans and uh, on dressing smartly at the war memorial in its uh, propaganda, I guess. Uh, interesting uh, talk. We'll, we'll come on to that in a moment. Uh, we also want to comment on the biggest protests in history that are going on right now uh, in India, in uh, Delhi, across the rest of the country. Uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, the leader of the BJP party, um, is uh, threatening a crackdown against farmers uh, who are rebelling in India against uh, moves to basically uh, uh, um, make uh, or liberalise the laws around agriculture uh, in a country where uh, a vast proportion, a major- social majority of the population works in agriculture. Very, very interesting events happening there. Again, we'll come on to that later on in the show. But first, returning to the home, as I said earlier, uh, there has been uh, a leaked report from a PR agency working for the Labour Party uh, saying that uh, the public doesn't really see where uh, Keir Starmer stands, uh, thinks that uh, he's a bit wishy-washy. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that his approval ratings are higher than the Labour Party's at the moment. Um, but nevertheless, this is, these are sort of worrying things and for the party. And their advice... Uh, was to basically have Keir Starmer wrap himself in a a union jack. Um, And I thought that was kind of interesting. And actually, my initial thought, um, I was going started writing an article, actually, for our um, blog, but then it was all sort of said by Clive Lewis, which is interesting because if uh, I, I thought if you wanted to sort of meld those three things together... Um, if you wanted to find a veteran, uh, Clive Lewis is your man. Maybe stick him in a suit and uh, and get him to uh, sing "Rule Britannia." Maybe that's maybe that's what they were intending to do. But then, of course, literally hours after I started writing that, uh, Clive Lewis actually popped up with an absolutely brilliant evisceration of of, of the plan itself. Um, and the broad consensus, I think, uh, I would say, is that. Uh, it's a bit empty, really, uh, isn't it, uh, to uh, to to express patriotism, but without uh, having any real policies at this stage. Uh, what did you think of it all, uh, Callum? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think that the 
the party, if we're going to go down this line, needs to, um, I, I agree with some people saying that we need to be reclaiming the Union Jack. That has been a tool of many people on the right and used to bash people in the Labour Party. But the way we're going about it is completely the wrong way about it. I think what we need to be doing is having truly progressive policies, policies that make you proud to be British. So policies that invest properly in public services, ensure that everybody is fed, ensure that everybody has a good education, ensure that everybody has a roof over their head and has a good job that's going to pay the bills. As it currently stands, as I say, we're flipping it. We're, we're getting the imagery right first and completely neglecting the policy at times. And I'm sure that, as we know, in, in 2019, we had a fantastic manifesto and in 2017, we did as, as well. And I sincerely hope that that happens again in the next general election. We don't know what the policies will look like. And we uh, have yet to see Starmer prove his, his credibility in that purely because of the pandemic. But I think in terms of imagery, I think we, we are taking it a step too far. I think we're appealing to quite a niche in British politics. Um, some people do like to see the Union Jack plastered everywhere and some people find that rather stirring and quite happily vote for a party that does that. But actually, I think that most people will look to vote for a party that is in our communities. It's caring for the most needy in our society. It's looking to rebalance injustice. It's looking to care for everyone and ensure that we're a, a, a respectable and tolerant country in the world. And I think that as it currently stands, we need to be looking at those policies first and then using that as a way to reclaim our national imagery in terms of the flag, in terms of some of these things that really appeal to people. I think that by making the Union Jack associated with those policies is the best way to be a, a, a patriot, if you like. Because actually, I know I'd be more proud of a country that is fighting for the little man, fighting for people that are, that are beaten and battered by the system they live in and fighting for those people that really need a help up in life. Yeah, I thought so. And, you know, look, there are ways of doing it, aren't there? Like, you could, if you were talking about veterans, you could say, well, you, you know, we've, we've had all of these conflicts in the past, Iraq and Afghanistan most recently, but there are still veterans from earlier conflicts. You know, they've suffered from physical injury. They've suffered from PTSD. So you could say, okay, well, if, you, you know, these people, they, they've served their country, arguably under dubious circumstances, it's not necessarily their fault. But nevertheless, they've gone on, they've done, uh, done their duty. They've suffered as a consequence. We're going to look after them properly. I think that's perfectly valid. Um, you know, if you want to sort, you know, you, you get that thing as well, you, whether you talk about, flag faith and family well you know i wouldn't want to talk about faith in the, in this country because i think we, we we try and keep more of a separation of powers um but uh, or the separation of church and state rather um but you know if you want to talk about the family for instance you know why not uh big up our policies that we've had in the past about free childcare and extending that you know, and extending uh, maternity and paternity leave, those sorts of things, which would have a, a very positive effect uh, on a child's upbringing, would be really good for the family. And 
you know, not just any family, but your family, whether that, you know, that's uh, whether that's a same sex couple or, or a, a heteronormative couple or whatever, you know, it, it ticks all the boxes then because you're talking about family, but you're also being quite progressive as well. So, you know, there's ways of going about it. I just don't think that the people around Kia Starmer at the moment have that sort of creativity. And you know, I was saying before we were recording the solution that's now being suggested to Kia Starmer, it's being talked about in a Times article that I can't read because it's uh, behind a paywall and I refuse to give money to, to, to the Murdoch Press uh, just like that. Um, but these, they're talking about how apparently how he needs to be more pro-business. I mean, it, it just feel, it just feel like. I mean, I I didn't vote for Keir Starmer, but you know, I I could see the value in him. You know, this respectable barrister, respect, respectable lawyer, and he has taken up some good cases uh, for for the labour movement in the past on human rights as well, um, reasonably articulate, um, decent hair, you know, all of these sorts of things that people were talking about at the time, you know. And I thought there's such potential uh, in this guy to implement what his, what he, what his pitch to the membership basically was, which was uh, Corbynism, but with a, with a human face. Um, it just seems to be getting everything wrong and uh it's it's very frustrating to watch um you know the 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 other suggestion as well there's there was an article in the daily express so we should probably take that with a pinch of salt which was suggesting that you know there were some cabinet shadow cabinet members even suggesting john mcdonnell as an alternative bear in mind this is you know, if that's true, this is a shadow cabinet picked by Keir Starmer, largely removed from uh, Jeremy Corbyn's old cabinet. And these people are saying, well, we should have John McDonnell uh, back, which is which is really interesting. And th- th- their pr- principal concern is, uh, is basically that Keir Starmer's missed miss the boat with, uh, with the pandemic because, you know, we have one of the highest per capita death ratios in the world for COVID-19. But we also now have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world per capita. And the government is going to use that, going to try and ride that wave in the elections early this year. And Keir Starmer and the Labour Party will have very little to say about it because they weren't really holding the government to account during the worst of their mismanagement during during the pandemic itself. Um, I've gone on a bit about that. Um, what what do you, I'll give uh, Bradley a chance to respond. What do what do you think is is going on at the, at the top of the Labour Party these days, Bradley? I mean, uh, when it when it comes to the issue of, of you know sort of the, this sort of you use plastic patriotism my, my immediate reaction is just to sort of cringe it's all so sort of embarrassing i think you know and i think the signs of this were there even when starman was running and you know you had conversations with those in the party about why we support why are you supporting starman and often it would come down to this idea of 
Um, not electability. We wouldn't use the word electability because I think that's been tainted in, in past years and the debates around that have been had. And I think partly because Corbyn did much better in 2017 than, than was thought and he, and he re-won the leadership and all that sort of So I think term electability has become a, a, a bit strayed away from by, by those that think that way. And, but there was all this sort of talk about competence of Starmer when he was running for the leadership. And I'm primarily I'm voting for Starmer because we, we need a competent leader and he, and he you know, exudes competence. And you, you'd push people a little bit on that and be like, well, what, what do you mean by that? And I, I never really got a proper answer on that. You know, people would talk about the fact that, you know, he's got a legal background and he and he, he's really an intelligent man um, and, and he, this idea of forensic analysis and all this sort of stuff. It all just felt a bit sort of scrambly to me. It never, it all felt a bit vague and like it didn't really have any substance to it. That, that was my impression of it anyway. And, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing in this sort of sort of like vague attempt to sort of message in a, in a, in a clever or crafty way. It clearly has nothing behind it and, and no no clear vision or, or roadmap behind it. And, and, I, and I, you know, the stuff around, around nationalism and I think there, there was something in the reports after, after this report had initially gone out, um, there was some, some comms sent out about making sure Union Jacks were the headers instead of the Red Labour um, being the... the the, the header on an on an emails that were going out and it it's just I mean obviously that's not that's not the I'm not suggesting that's the extent of their electoral strategy I'm sure I'm sure they've got more things to nod towards patriotism than that but it all just seems a bit sort of I don't know pathetic it, it you know the, what we need is a transformative vision that's going to change the material reality for for people in this country and instead what we've got is a let, let's try and seem a bit more patriotic if we can. Let's have more press conferences in front of Union Jacks if we can. It's just, it's just a bit cringy, and I think it's quite transparent as well. I think, I think we do voters a disservice to think they're, they're that easy to get on side and they're that easy to sort of, uh, you know, to change their minds. If we, if we talk up Britain a little bit more, and if we, if we feature the Union Jack in more of our comms and. And that sort of thing, then we're we're suddenly, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna win over loads more voters. I, I just I just think it does vote as a disservice to think that it's that easy. Um and and it all just it all just seems a bit transparent to me and, and a bit lacklustre and a bit a bit a bit embarrassing to be honest. Um it's it's to me the image I keep having in my head is is sort of like, you know, uh, uh, a middle aged man with a with a cap on backwards or talking to the kids about hip-hop. That's what it feels like to me. It just feels just all a little bit awkward, a little bit cringe, and a little bit transparent. Um, but maybe maybe in a few months' time, it will have coalesced into uh, a really clever comms strategy. I don't know. Maybe it's too early to tell, but that's what it feels like at the moment to me. Um, Do you see that? Oh, sorry, go on. Go on, what was your question? I'll... I'll... Well, I was going to move on to uh, get Callum's thoughts on on that, but oh, oh, the... one more thing then before you do that, just for me, all of this is backwards, right? People are forgetting what we are. We are a political party. What's the point of a political party? You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna get philosophical here, what's what's the point of the Labour Party? What is the purpose of it? Not just the Labour Party, but a political party in general. Its purpose is bring together a group of roughly like-minded individuals that believe in a certain vision of society and and then you know to to engage in primarily parliamentary but not just um political struggle 
to advance those aims. So how on earth can a political party do that if it isn't clear what its aims are? What are we actually trying to achieve as a party? What What is our vision actually for Britain? And the, re- the leaked report made it very clear that a lot of voters, well, not a lot, but the, certainly the voters that were involved in, in being surveyed in that report, aren't really sure what that looks like in the Keir Starmer. And as a fairly active member, I'm not really sure what that looks like in the Keir Starmer. So, you know, the first thing a party needs to do is be really clear about what its vision and what its ideals and, and, and what its programme is. And then you worry about the, the strategy. Then you worry about how you communicate that to voters. And, and nobody, you know, of course, when you, when you develop that strategy, sorry, when you develop that, that set of that vision and those ideas, obviously that means going out and talking to people. That obviously means engaging with the issues that the public think are the, are, are the most prominent issues. Um, that's inevitably going to involve some sort of reckoning with, with uh, views in various parts of the country around immigration and, and around nationalism and around patriotism. So no one's suggesting we can ignore those issues. Um, we've got to figure out what, what is actually the solution to these problems. So for me personally, I, I don't think uh, that the level of immigration we've seen over, over the last 20, 30 years is is causing any social problems, really. Um, I, I think the, the problem has been, uh, you know, successive in public services, um, lacks um, public, you know, lack, lack of standards in the, in the workplace and, and properly enforced you know, living wage. All, so all those sorts of things. Um, we have to figure that out as a party. Where do we stand on these issues and, and what, what do we want to see happen as a result of them? And then we worry about the comms and, and, and the strategy and all that sort of stuff. But at the moment, it seems like we've we've got a leadership team that is is focused on the latter part of that without really having to get out the preceding bit. There's all sorts of nods towards Corbyn era policy. You know, Starmer did that interview recently where, where he affirmed various bits of, of Corbyn policy. And obviously he had his 10 pledges when he, when he ran to be leader. One, that's sort of just agreeing with the stuff that came before. So as a leader, it's not really giving any sort of ideological stamp to, to his tenure. Um, but secondly, you know, how, how much are we, we going to package that? Because one of the big failures of Corbyn, I think, in 2019 um, was, was not, having a, not, not having a proper strategy for how we communicated what, what a lot of voters saw as sort of scattergun policies that are being announced. Um, so, you know, what, what we need to see now as a party is how do we take all that really good policy, really important steps to change the country? How do we put that into a compelling and coherent narrative? And and I don't think we do that by, by chucking Union Jack on an email header. Callum, is the, um, is the idea of having a sort of patriotic manifesto next time round dead because of, uh, because of what's happened uh, this week? Would you agree with what Bradley just said in terms of you know you can't just wrap a flag around the whole thing and and uh, and expect people who consider themselves to be uh, patriotic, however you wish to interpret that, um, expect those people to just back it uh, because of because of uh, a PR campaign like that. I I think that that is, I think Bradley summed it up very well. I think that just by having a Union Jack in the background on a a party video, having a Union Jack on one of our emails, even when we can leaflet, if they decide that they're going to say that we're going to put Union Jacks all over everything, I don't think that that's going to work. I don't think that's going to convince people to vote Labour. As I said before, proper transformational policies is what convinces people to vote Labour. 
because we are the party of transformation. We're the party of delivering on transformation as well. And I think we ought to be looking at that as a reason to be opposing these changes. As I said, the imagery, the flags, the patriotic wording can come after we've developed our policies and our program that we're going to deliver when we're in government. Because I don't think that that's the way forward to simply splash a flag actually is is quite patronising, I think, to people. I think that actually most people will see through that, that it's just the Labour Party to pretending to be the, the the Conservatives by f- splashing a flag on it and assuming that that will get people happy and singing Rule Britannia. You know, it's not that simple because actually I think most people have concerns, whether it be in London, it's concerns about housing and the cost of living. If you go up north, it's concerns about work. Where am I going to get work from? Where is Where is work going to pay? You know, why do I have to have three jobs just to get by? You know, it's questions like that that we need to be answering. We need to be answering questions. Why is the NHS on its knees? Well, we know that's because it's been critically underfunded and understaffed for the last decade. And we need to be promising to be reversing that and some extra on top of that. And when we talk about things like, I I always find it interesting when, when, um, parties talk about defence spending. So we had the Conservatives announce uh, a few months ago now about £16 billion extra for defence. Well, actually, that money was already there. They do, they're they not actually committing to spend any more money, but they seem to be under the impression that that will make people very happy indeed and get them to vote for them. And I'm sure there are some people that will, but actually, once that was fact-checked, once we actually said, no, you're just moving money around, there's no extra money being spent here, then actually you can see through the lies and you can see through what is essentially a cover-up for a lack of meaningful policies that actually are going to do any good. So moving back to Labour, I think what we need to be doing is speaking to communities up and down the country, understanding what their concerns are, what are their problems, and I know that some people seem to think that Brexit is people's biggest problem and people seem to be so worried about immigration. But actually, I don't think that's the truth. I think, as I say, people worried about having a house that they can live in and afford to to live in, whether they want to rent or whether they want to get a mortgage and buy a house. I think people are worried about their children's education and some schools have been critically underfunded, as is the NHS and so many other public services. We need to be promising the public services, the national infrastructure, the funding that's going to change people's lives. And that starts by speaking to them, understanding their concerns, and not just listening to PR companies that I'm assuming are just pulling these these facts out of out of thin air, because most people on the ground realise that there's, there's problems in, in society. And I don't think waving a flag is going to really make anything better. It's not a magic wand that's going to make poverty go away. It's not a magic wand that's going to get rid of homelessness and get rid of the problems that we have. So that's that's what I think we need to be doing. Get out into the community, get organising in the community, really have an ear to the ground and see what people are saying on the ground. Because without that, I think we, we end up being a rudderless, rudderless ship, just being blown with the wind that the press give us. And I don't think that that's a good litmus paper for any public attitudes whatsoever. 
Bradley, you want to come back? Yeah, so I suppose I, I was a bit Starmer-esque, wasn't I, in that I focused almost on the on the on the competence of, of Starmer being able to pull this off. But at the moment, it, it seems like they're they're quite incompetently um, trying to trying to have these sort of awkward messaging ideas um, around nationalism. Um, but I suppose there's still a question of if if they actually in the next few months come up with a really um, a, a really good comm strategy for, for communicating how patriotic Labour actually is. Um, there's still the question that remains there of actually, is, is that a route we want to go down? Um, now, I, I lot, obviously a lot of people on the left, um, for very good reasons, are very sceptical of patriotism and nationalist sort of sentiment. Um, I, I, don't, I don't mind it to a degree. I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with having pride and, and loving the area in which you grew up in and, and you want to extend that to the, to the country as a whole. Fine. I think the, the problem is where you start, you know, sort of ignoring the the flaws um, in it in something, or when you start suggesting something is better than something else. Because it's one thing to say, you know, this this place is great. I love this place, and it's another thing to say this place is better than your place, and, and and in some way morally superior to your place. Those are, I do think those are two separate things, and um, that that should and that should be recognised. I think the thing that's always struck me about being patriotic and and therefore not walking down Britain has always confused me because if if you love a person you know it's a family member a partner a really close friend if you love someone you don't ignore it when they do shitty things you know if, if you're a good friend I think part of being a good friend is calling your friend out when they do bad things and saying to them I, I don't think that's right actually you, you maybe need to address that um I would certainly hope that friends of mine if they see me doing things that they don't think is right I would hope that they would have the confidence to say to me, "Actually, Brad, that that was a that was a bad move. You shouldn't you shouldn't do that." So I've never quite understood why patriotism should be inflated with like ignoring the sins of the empire. For instance, you know the, the classic sort of "we can't speak ill of the empire if we're patriotic" sort of thing. The empire was a pretty terrible thing. You know, it caused untold suffering and death around the world. And um, so, if if we love this this Britain that that we have now. Why would we not acknowledge that and, and seek to make sure that that never happens again and, and that the way we construct society now never falls prey to those sorts of tendencies again? To me, that, that should be part of, of, a, of, if you want to call it patriotism, a form of patriotism. Um, I think we do the country a disservice to ignore the faults in it and, and, and pretend they're not there. I don't think that's love. I think that, that's something else that, that's not, not, as, um, not as good. So there is that there is that question, and there is also the question of if we're going down the nationalistic patriotic route, then you know that that's a narrative, isn't it? If if we're if we're choosing to focus that in our comms, that's a comm strategy, and it and it's focusing on a narrative of of Britain and, and Britishness and and how Labour policy um, strengthens Britain or celebrates Britain, but the focus is on the nation, isn't it? And, and, and Britain, I. I don't think that's really where our focus should be because it's not really the important criteria. If you look at the problems we face, if if you're you know if you're a socialist and you and you want to bring about a socialist world and a socialist country, you think actually primarily the problem is capitalism and and the, the inherent tendencies within a capitalist system and and also those very wealthy individuals that benefit from it and and support it and, and try and make sure that capitalism remains. So for me, the analysis should, should be really, it should be on uh, 
it should be the, the framing should be on workers it should be on local communities um it should be on um the vast scale of inequality in the world and in, in our society so the focus should be on the who's that benefit from the system the, the very the very very rich and the power they wield but also the system that allows them to do that it's not just about getting rid of billionaires it's about getting rid of the system that gives us billionaires so for me that's what the narrative needs to be and that's what the focus needs to be and i think we were beginning to get there under Corbynism. there were obviously all sorts of problems and, and failures of of, of our comms during the Corbyn era. I think we were at least beginning to understand what our base values are and what the narrative is we need to tell to communicate those to the public. And yet 2017 showed that actually you, you can convince a really lot of people about that. And that was with a, you know, a haphazard and disorganised sort of party. And we, we managed to convince that many people. We came within a, you know, within a few inches of power, really. Um, so... For me, that's the other danger of sort of focusing on patriotism and nationalism is that it it confuses the message we need to tell. If, if for me anyway, for the for the policies we need to be putting out there, for the narrative we need to be telling, focus on nationalism, and patriotism doesn't really help that, and it best confuses it. I think. Hmm. And it's never really helped us in the past as well. I mean, some people might point to uh, the nineteen forties, for instance, where you know Labour Party conferences you would see uh, Union Jack draped everywhere and, and so on. Obviously, you've got that uh, speech by, uh, I think it was Ernest Bevan saying, you know, uh, talking about the nuclear bomb, saying we've got to have it, we've got to have a bloody Union Jack on it. Um, but something to, I think, bear in mind about that is that obviously that government was made up of people who had been basically running the country during the Second World War. And so obviously, you know, patriotism and, uh, you know, the the idea of a national cause was, you know, ever present at that point. So it was it was natural to, to have uh, a few Union Jacks waving around. You know, these days, you know, we've got a different uh, national crisis uh, that we've had really nothing no, nothing to do with running the country about but actually the the way that the government's behaved has been quite appalling during during covid um so you know there's no real call for that sort of blind patriotism towards the government if anything you know uh the focus should be on you know what the state has done wrong um I think we'll move on to our next story because we spent half an hour on that. Um, but uh, I mean, one thing one thing I would say is, you know, obviously Keir Starmer has not been in charge for uh, a year yet, so it's coming up, uh, and you know, the first year of Jeremy Corbyn being in charge you know, was quite chaotic. So yeah, we'll, may, maybe we'll, we'll see some improvements. I don't think it's looking likely at the moment, but we'll. Uh, we shall see what happens. But uh, the next story is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the mass protests that have been happening in India. They actually started with the general strikes. It's actually a general strike uh, that's that's been going on. It's interesting how this is not really reported uh, very much uh, in the West, possibly because it's you know it, it's 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 actually uh, the the protests are primarily about you know farmers and their rights, but 
the the uh, demands that the strikers have, you know, involve stopping the privatization of public sector corporations, for instance, um, introducing 10 kilograms of free grain ration per month to anyone in need, um, direct cash transfers of families who earn less than the income tax threshold. You know, these are quite radical policies that don't really fit well uh, with a, a neoliberal government. Um, you know, the withdrawal of all anti-worker labor code changes, you know, that, that, are, that are being proposed as well. You know, these are serious, serious issues. Uh, the protests have been organized by 10 trade unions. It's also been endorsed, interestingly, by the uh, Indian National Congress, which, you know, if you know your sort of the history, if you like, the Indian National Congress was uh, basically the party was, or the, the, was basically the movement that gained India its independence, or at least organized, was the organized representative body. Um, that uh, and it dominated Indian politics for decades until Nehendra Modi's BJP uh, took power a few years ago. Um, it's also supported, of course, by the Communist Party of India, as you as you would expect. Um, but it, it's very very interesting because the economic history of India is that it was actually quite a closed uh, economy, quite self sufficient um, until maybe the last two decades um, where there's been uh, increasing neoliberalism uh, introduced as there have been in many places but because more than the more something to bear in mind is that more than 50 percent of the population works in agriculture and it's agriculture that's coming under direct um, attack here because the government's legislation would basically make it easier for lands to be purchased up. So you could see um, you know, huge swathes of the countryside being uh, becoming uh, amalgamated into large uh, conglomerates, and that would be obviously against the interests of, uh, of the agrarian population of India. So that huge population has a massive interest in overturning those laws, and those trade unions that are involved have said that they had uh, 250 million people involved in a general strike, um, which is you know approaching one in five people in India, 20% of the population, which is absolutely massive. Um, and it doesn't look, it seems to be quite sustainable. They're camped around Delhi at the moment. Um, you know, they're not definitely not going to back down, but equally at the same time, the Indian government says it's not going to back down either. Um, so we could have a really interesting, uh, a really interesting situation um, if the uh, if the Indian government actually uh, does put a resist resistance up to it. Because you know, where do we, where where do we go from there? Um, so it's worth commenting on. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's something that we're not necessarily all that qualified to talk on, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning. Uh, do either of you have any comment on it, Callum? Yeah, it's uh, it's as as you rightly said at the start of that introduction to this story, 
it's interesting how we haven't had much coverage in the West about this. What is potentially the biggest protest in history? Well, it's certainly one of the greatest pieces of strike action in history. And if it's successful, I think it would probably go down in the history books as being something just never seen before in, in, in a state so large. You talk about the agriculture sector taking up half of the Indian economy, uh, well, the Indian workforce at least. That's, that's over half a billion people in that one sector. And if, if only a percentage of them are taking part, this is still astronomical numbers. And I think that this is this is very much a debate that's happening um, in a number of countries at the moment about governments trying to take a shift on from their previous policies, certainly in their approach to agriculture, as they look to um, industrialize their agricultural sectors, but also push on for development of cities and, and other such areas of industry and obviously India is is extremely uh, um, ambitious in its in its efforts to expand its economy to challenge the US to challenge uh, its neighbor in China to challenge um, obviously the traditional Western economies as well so it's 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 incredibly ambitious what they're doing but they're doing it the wrong way is the important thing here um, I think by undermining the majority people, by taking away a number of their rights, by not recognizing that still tens of millions of people, if not more, are living in poverty in India. And, and this is absolute poverty in some cases. Um, we're, they're failing to recognize that. And I think that this is a culmination of attacks on the predominant industry in the country, um, combined with the undermining of rights combined with the Modi government failing in its responsibilities to look after people and obviously its policy approach is very much on the right and also it's a and in addition to that it's also just the fact that things are, are changing in India but they're going in the wrong direction for what the the majority can uh, can can palette really so I think, I mean, it's a situation where I don't know loads about, but actually what I've been reading about it is that it's, it's going to really come to a loggerhead soon. Obviously, we're in a deadlock now, but as to how that gets broken remains to be seen. And I think the actions of the security forces has been rather questionable in this as well. I think that's important to mention. I know the UN came out and was condemning some of the government action against protesters because ultimately they do have the right to protest. They do have the right to strike and they do have the right to stand up for their rights when they're being wholly undermined by a government. So I think this this certainly is, is good to see as to whether the outcomes will be peaceful uh, remains to be seen. And I, I hope it is a peaceful resolution to the situation at hand. And I think that the fact that so many unions have come together and so many um, different political factions have come together as well to back the strike, to back the farmers is is incredibly, um, I suppose it's, it's nice to see. It really is nice to see in, in our in our world of hyper-politicisation and nobody talking to each other, a general national movement across a political spectrum against a government imposing 
some rather questionable policies is is great to see anywhere and i really hope that they are successful in their endeavors hmm. some lessons for us perhaps uh, in this country i mean the, this sort this uh, whole movement basically came out of nothing um and you know it's been brought into being by the actions of the government in india um you know nendra modi's government was reasonably popular hitherto uh so yeah, it'd be uh, fascinating to see what happens in that part of the world. I mean, it is almost the world's most populous country. So if there's a if there is a genuine revolution or a serious reversal of neoliberalism there, it could have uh, huge implications for uh, the rest of the world. So we do need to pay more attention to it. Clearly, um, I think that's it. Really. Uh, that was all we were going to. That was all we were going to talk about. Unless there's anything else. Well, just on the the implications for the rest of the world, I, I'd, I'd like to pick up on that. I think we have got a lot to learn from uh, from the actions here in in this in this country. I think that when we look at how undermined trade unions are in this country and how um, the country is being divided by the media and by rhetoric that we see. I think that this is a, a real example of the good work that people can do when they come together. I think that when people come together and stand up for the common interest, actually what we see is a is a hopefully a, a massive change and a positive change at that. And um, I think the Labour Party can learn from this. Obviously, we don't have a, a largely agricultural industry anymore in this country that is long gone but in terms of community organizing in terms of standing up for our nhs and other such uh, public services that have been attacked ruthlessly by the government i think that this is something we can learn and build a popular movement to protect it and and subsequently get the beneficial outcomes from that instead of uh, as we discussed earlier changing the banner at the top of an email hmm. Nice little callback there, Callum. Well done. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think, as I say, that was everything we were going to talk about. So uh, thank you very much for your participation. Next week, we're hoping to have uh, Karen Lee uh, on the former MP for Lincoln, also um, a nurse as well, who has been working flat out, as I understand it up at the hospital during this uh, COVID pandemic. So she's going to talk about some of her experiences and hopefully give us some for political takes maybe on uh, on uh, how her experiences link into that. We'll see how it goes. Um, but for now, it's goodbye from myself, Callum Watson. It's goodbye from Callum Roper. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. And I look forward to the interview next week. And goodbye from Bradley Olson. Bye, folks. Stay safe. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>